We know that we were all shut up in our houses, so we're excited that we can be back together in some way, shape, or form, and we will figure all that out. Uh, so that is coming. Uh, also, norm, as normal, we have a lot of things going on here at the church. We've got Wednesday night ABF. We'd still encourage people to come to that. It's a good time of conversation, good time of teaching, and a good time of connection with small group. Uh, so I don't know what's going on. All right. Um, so um, we would encourage you to come to that. Uh, Saturday morning men prayer at 7.30. Uh, be here uh, if you're a man. Uh, and uh, what else did I miss? Oh, Sunday nights. Sunday nights. Uh, not only do we have our epic teen program going on, and we'd love to have any teens join us, uh, there also is a discussion group and a prayer group that meets on Sunday night to talk about the sermons, and it's an opportunity to not only listen, to, but, but also to participate. So those are some things that we still have going on, and I'm going to pray right now to open our service, and then uh, Pastor Justin will be coming to share with us from uh, Daniel 4. So let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this time that you've given us today to come together. God, we don't want to take this for granted that you've allowed us to be here, to worship, to be the body of Christ in a visible way. And I thank you for that opportunity. I pray that as we hear your word right now, that you would help us to understand what you would have for us to understand and change what you'd have for us to change and to live the way that you would have us to live. God, ultimately, would you just pour your grace on us this morning as we hear your word and are changed by it. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So says Proverbs 16.18. A few verses earlier, in Proverbs 16.5, we read, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. These are dire warnings against pride. Leaders are prone to pride. Rulers and those entrusted with authority are often tempted toward arrogance and pride. What happens when human pride confronts divine sovereignty? It is certainly not the case of an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. No, the Proverbs are true. God's sovereignty will overrule human pride and bring it to destruction, a fall, and punishment. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has acted in pride already in the book of Daniel, even after the one true God delivered a message to him in a dream that communicated both God's sovereign power to rule and explain history, and also Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom's impermanence, we find the king calling all of his subjects to worship before his image. He even had the blasphemous audacity to threaten three of the true God's people, friends of Daniel, as though even their God, the one true God, would not be powerful enough to rescue them from His own power. Well, after God does, in fact, rescue them in a way that shocks and awes the king, and after the king declares the uniqueness of their God in His power to save, we might expect that perhaps the king has been sufficiently humbled, learned his lesson about pride and arrogance. But alas, 
No, the king has not yet experienced his downfall, punishment, or his destruction. As one writer puts it, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is the sovereign of the world, but he is not even the sovereign of his own story. As we enter chapter 4, we're probably leaping forward more than 20 years in history. Chapter 4 contains the contents of a letter that the king composed, probably with Daniel's help, as we'll see. It's a familiar story, and it has a very simple chiastic outline that looks like this. If you'll put that slide on the screen. Unlike chapter 2, this time the shape of the story does emphasize and highlight the interpretation of the dream. The message of Daniel 4 can be summarized like this. God is the rightful ruler over all human kingdoms, and he decides which, when, and how long human rulers receive authority. There is no doubt about this being the main message of the chapter. The theme appears plainly six times in these 37 verses. So let's begin. Nebuchadnezzar praises God, so he begins his letter with praise of the true God. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. The address to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth is one of those universal references that we have to think about and recognize that he doesn't mean this literally. He is addressing the subjects of his kingdom. The phrase that dwell in all the earth is what we might call political rhetoric or political hyperbole. He likes to think of his kingdom as a global empire, but it most certainly was not. Notice also how he characterizes what happened to him as signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Indeed, his punishment and restoration are both miraculous deeds that God did to him. In the Old Testament, repeatedly, the phrase signs and wonders refers to what God did against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, during the Exodus. Here, the king of Babylon says that God has done these signs and wonders for him. He then shifts into poetic praise of Yahweh, the Most High God. The God he sees now at the top of the Babylonian pantheon. He'll close the letter with praise that repeats and expands these words, so we'll consider that in more detail at the end. Now let's see how Nebuchadnezzar reports his dream. Verses 4 through 18. This time, he describes the contents of the dream. Let's start just setting the stage in verses 4 through 7. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. We'll come back to the chronology of when this dream might have occurred, but notice that it was at a time when his empire was at peace, at the height of his power. 
We feel a sense of deja vu here as he summons the wise guys to interpret his dream. And as before, they are unable to do so, even when this time he describes the dream to them. Look at verses 8 and 9. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Daniel must have been traveling or on some assignment, but he finally arrives. Notice the way the king describes him in these verses. He knows that the spirit of the holy gods is in Daniel. Now, if you're reading the New King James Version, you'll see capital letters and the phrase, the spirit of the holy God, singular. It seems that the translators of the New King James Version have wrongly interpreted what's going on here. The king views Daniel from his pagan perspective. A spirit given by the gods helps Daniel. All other English Bible translations recognize this pagan perspective. Notice also that the king wants to give him credit. No mystery is too difficult for you, he says. But going back to chapter 2, Daniel refused to take any credit. He insisted that he didn't have the ability to interpret mysteries. He gave all credit to God. The king still can't seem to do that, even as he writes this letter and describes the situation after it's all over. He disregards Daniel's own perspective, and he still refers to him by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. And he still says... That this is, the name, this is after the name of my God. In verses 10 to 18, he describes the dream. Follow along. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, 
Tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. So, he saw a beautiful and large tree. It touched the sky, reminiscent of the Tower of Babel, and stretched throughout the world. All animals ate from the tree and found shade under it. Sounds like a pretty good dream so far. If Nebuchadnezzar is thinking that he might be the tree, this seems like a very good thing. But then, an angel, what he calls a watcher or a holy one, appears and gives a command to chop down the tree, strip its branches, throw away its fruit, and chase off the animals. But they are to leave the stump in the the ground. And you need to see that as a sign of hope. If the dream were an announcement of the total final judgment against Nebuchadnezzar, then it would have depicted uprooting the tree and burning it or something like that. But instead, the stump and its roots remain in the ground, and that allows for hope that the tree might grow again. And that's intentional, as we'll see in Daniel's explanation. But notice in the middle of verse 15 that the imagery suddenly shifts. The angel is no longer describing the tree but he's describing the man that the tree represents. The tree has a man's mind. That is, it represents a man. And the angel is decreed that his mind must be transformed, radically changed from a human mind to an animal mind. The point comes through loud and clear in verse 17. But notice that the purpose is not just to punish or instruct Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, this is going to happen... To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This event will serve as a message to everyone. And this explains why the king would draw up this account and send it as a letter to all his subjects. And then why the Holy Spirit preserved the record as part of sacred scripture, as part of God's word to people throughout the ages. Now we get to see Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, verses 19 to 27. Let's look at verse 19 to begin. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. That's the same language as we saw with the king himself. The king was alarmed after the dream, and now Daniel has seen it, and Daniel is alarmed. Daniel now knows what the dream means. He recognizes that this is bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. We know, and Daniel knows surely even better than us, that Nebuchadnezzar has a tendency to respond poorly to bad news. He throws people into furnaces when they don't do what he wants them to do. And so, when there's a little trouble, Nebuchadnezzar has a bit of a rage problem. And so Daniel could be expressing a bit of fear here, knowing that if he tells him that this is a statement of judgment against him, he's probably not going to be real happy about that. And he might throw him in a furnace or something like that. Now, many years have probably passed since chapter 3 when the king threw the three Jews into the fire. So maybe Nebuchadnezzar has grown up a little bit, and maybe he's dealt with the rage problem to some degree. Or maybe not. But we do see a bit of kindness here in Nebuchadnezzar himself in the middle of verse 19. 
as Daniel is expressing his own concern and dismay and his alarm at having to report this news to the king, the king speaks to him. Nebuchadnezzar can tell, looking at Daniel, that he's troubled. And so the king says to him, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Nebuchadnezzar's a smart guy, and it seems that he has some perception that this is a bad news kind of dream for him. So he reassures Daniel, I know it's not going to be a good thing for me to hear, but I must know what this means, and I won't fly off the handle. Look at Daniel's response. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. If only the tree represented the king's enemies. That seems to be Daniel's initial response in verse 19. Daniel recognizes that the dream indicates a warning of God's judgment against Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems that Daniel has come to care for this king. This king who stole him from his parents. This king who by this point in history has destroyed his hometown of Jerusalem and slaughtered thousands of his kinsmen. This king who defiled, desecrated, and destroyed the temple of Yahweh, Daniel's God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. Overcome evil with good, the Apostle Paul said. So let's hear what the dream means. Look at verses 20 to 26. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you, from the time that you know that heaven rules. The tree is King Nebuchadnezzar. The chopping down of the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar losing power, losing the ability to rule, being driven off the throne by God. Look again at verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High. Now we read in verse 17... Nebuchadnezzar quoting the angel, and the angel had said, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. This gives us a little unique window into heaven. Let's take a glance through this window and see what the Lord reveals to us about 
how things work in heaven. We are meant to understand that there are angels grouped together in something like a council, a decision-making body, a committee of angels, if you will. And they are actively bringing into the world, into human history, decisions pronounced in the council. They're changing things, affecting human history, impacting people's lives. The way it sounds in verse 17, just as Nebuchadnezzar sees it and hears it in his dream, the angels seem to act independently. They seem to have gotten their own little group together and they've made a decision that they are going to bring judgment against King Nebuchadnezzar. And that would have been an acceptable and understandable idea in Nebuchadnezzar's pagan mind. His understanding of the way angels worked from his pagan theology would have fit the picture of seeing angels acting independently of the gods. Daniel supplies a corrective to that picture. In verse 24, we get more information as Daniel cracks the window open a bit more to give us a slightly clearer glimpse into how things work in heaven. In chapter 10... Daniel will have the window opened even further, but we'll see there that it's all too much even for the prophet Daniel to take in. Nevertheless, here in verse 24, Daniel says that it is a decree of the Most High, Yahweh, the God of Israel. The angels were indeed convened as a committee, and they are indeed putting into effect on earth certain decisions made in heaven. But the one who makes the decisions is God not the angels. And so you get to see one way God brings about what he has decided will take place in history. He, at times, sends angels to earth to bring about certain events in human history. God has decreed to execute an act of judgment against King Nebuchadnezzar, and he has shown the king ahead of time through an angelic communication. Look at verse 25 again. Here we find what we saw earlier as the transformation of the man's mind to the mind of an animal is precisely what's going to happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. God is going to strike him with a mental illness. Now I'm choosing the term mental illness very intentionally because that's what it seems to be. There's a class of mental illnesses that fits the description we find here. It's been documented throughout history But only in modern times have folks been able to study the brain and see what's actually going on in cases like this. These conditions have been labeled zoanthropy, from two Greek words, zoon, which means animal, and anthropos, which means man. So essentially you have here beast man. This is a class of occurrences where a person suddenly begins to believe that he is an animal, a beast, and he starts acting like it separating himself from society and going out to live like an animal. There are subsets of this particular condition that are common. The most common is lycanthropy or leucanthropy, from the Greek words leukos, which means wolf, and anthropos again. Thus you have a wolf man. So people begin to believe that they are a dog and begin howling at the moon or barking like a dog. They are acting out antisocial behavior. This, of course, is the historical real-life basis from which we get the legends and myths about werewolves. 
It is a real condition where something changes in a person's brain. It's usually a psychotic episode where it's a radical shift in behavior. It doesn't develop gradually. Something breaks in the brain. And when doctors study it nowadays, they know that there's something biochemical going on. That's wrong. They didn't know that back then. They just observed the behavior and tried to deal with it. Now, why have I belabored this and given you all this scientific and medical information on this point? I want you to know what's going on here with Nebuchadnezzar at one level, but I also want you to know what's going on with God in this particular case. Nebuchadnezzar is going to begin acting like an ox. This, too, is a common subset of zoanthropy called boanthropy, from the Greek word bous, which means cow or ox. Nebuchadnezzar becomes ox man. And it is God who did this to him. The point I want you to see here is the reality that God is not limited in his access to human beings. Biologically, physically, chemically, or psychologically. God has access to every part of our brains, both physically and chemically, And also beyond that, and even deeper than that, God is not hindered in His actions. He can change a man's brain chemistry just like that. And He can do this both for judgment and for healing. This is not to say that every mental illness is an act of God's judgment. God strikes this king with this condition at this time. And God will restore him to sanity, repairing whatever neurochemistry he had impacted in the first place. God has the ability to manipulate and change our brain cells, our very brain chemistry. More importantly, he has the ability to go even deeper and actually access the very core of who we are. And he can change the core of who we are. He can change far more than our brain chemistry. He can change our patterns of thinking. He can change our feelings. This is just a glimpse of the reality that He can and does bring both judgment and healing to both bodies and souls. As with the man born blind in John 9, God does what He does in both judgment and salvation for His own glory. So, Nebuchadnezzar will experience this for a period of time. And then Daniel goes on to explain that the stump being left there indicates that God is going to preserve Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom while he's suffering from this mental illness. Think about it. If the king suddenly goes crazy and is out of commission for a little while, what's the normal thing that you'd expect to happen in an ancient kingdom like Babylon? People will start vying for the throne. If he's incompetent to rule, then someone would just step up, take control, and kill the mentally ill king. It's only by God's grace that that doesn't happen. God has decided that no one will take Nebuchadnezzar's throne. That's the only explanation we get. God decreed it. And we don't know how God actually preserved his throne. He could have used any number of means. But the point is that what God has decreed, no one can thwart or change. 
However, in verse 27, we see Daniel acting as a true prophet, instructing Nebuchadnezzar how to respond to this judgment message from the Lord. He tells the king to repent. Look at what he says. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is the only appropriate response when confronted with an announcement of God's judgment. Those being judged are responsible to repent. Daniel doesn't know whether the king will respond appropriately, but Daniel's job as a prophet is to instruct him on the proper response. Repentance for the king would look like a radical change of heart manifested in new, just, public policy over his empire. How different would history be had King Nebuchadnezzar heeded this prophetic call? We move into verses 28 to 33, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar's dream comes true. As we move into verse 28, notice that the point of view of the story changes. Up till this point, everything has been a first-person account. Nebuchadnezzar's been recounting his own experience, and he's been quoting Daniel's words in the last few verses. But here in verse 28, suddenly, we get a third-person narrator. Daniel, it seems, has stepped in to explain what happened next. And perhaps you can see how that makes good sense. If Nebuchadnezzar believes himself to be an ox, he's probably unable to recount how exactly that unfolded. It's likely that once he was restored, his memory of the whole event might be a bit fuzzy and may not even be there at all. Daniel, as an eyewitness observer, can tell the rest of the story. Apparently, the king did not repent. We don't know how he responded to Daniel in the moment, but we know for sure that he did not repent. Daniel's summary in verse 28 is chillingly simple. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Then Daniel informs us that a year passes. God granted the king an entire year to reflect on this message. And he had Daniel's call to repent hanging over his head for a full year. Notice something we haven't seen yet. Why is this judgment coming against King Nebuchadnezzar? The dream didn't exactly list his crimes. And from history, including from the history recorded in Scripture, we could certainly list some of those crimes. As we observed earlier, it's highly likely that this dream came to pass many years after his invasion and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Even though this was an act of Yahweh's own judgment of his own people, the God of Israel still would hold Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon fully responsible for their wickedness. Nevertheless, at the end of the passage, we finally get the specific sin in view. Pride. Listen to the king's words recorded in verses 29 and 30. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? When you start focusing so much on yourself, it becomes really clear who your God really is. He takes complete and total credit 
for the greatness of Babylon. And it was a great city. He had done great things to make it great. But God had already told him through the dream in chapter 2, and then through the experience he had with the three Jewish men in the fiery furnace in chapter 3, it is Yahweh, the God of Israel, God of gods and Lord of kings, who gave him all this. He doesn't give God any credit. No gratitude, no praise, no acknowledgement. He takes credit for it all. Yahweh, the God of Israel, does not like that. Because he deserves all the credit. He deserves all the glory, even for all the pagan kingdoms of the world. Whatever is rightly called good or great in this world ultimately comes from the only good and great God of the universe. Now before we look at what happens next, there's a historical detail that's just too delicious to leave out. Historical and archaeological records combine to reveal something interesting about the city of Babylon at this moment in history. Based on this archaeological and historical data, a fellow by the name of Paul Ferguson writes, Nebuchadnezzar had failed to notice two streets below him called Bow Down, Proud One, and May the Arrogant Not Flourish. He did not even recall that one of the names of his palace was The Place Where Proud Ones Are Compelled to Submit embedded in his own city planning and palace architecture was the message that God ultimately had to communicate to him through such drastic measures. Now look at verses 31 to 33. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Daniel describes what happened precisely as it was depicted in the dream. We come to the end, and Nebuchadnezzar again praises God. In verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar returns with his first-person account. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. We'll look at the content of his praise in just a minute, but notice that it was when the beast king lifted his eyes to heaven that God restored his sanity. This king had been depicted as the head of gold in the grand statue of chapter 2. And surely he was accustomed to being the top dog, looking down on everybody around him. But here, as one writer summarizes, he must look up and acknowledge a higher king than himself. Now it's time at last to evaluate how long this lasted, according to what we're told in the text. 
Notice that neither in the description of the dream by the king, nor in the interpretation provided by Daniel, and not even here at the end, as the historical fulfillment is narrated as it actually happened, do we actually see the length of time specified. Rather, in verses 16, 23, 25, and 32, the exact same phrase is used to describe the time frame. Seven periods of time shall pass over you. And here in verse 34, we simply read, at the end of the days. Many students of Scripture suggest that the phrase translated periods of time by the ESV refers to years, so that the king suffered from this mental illness for seven full years. Let's examine that suggestion. The word for times, or periods of time, has already appeared in Daniel. He has used the word in 2.8, where Nebuchadnezzar accused the wise guys of trying to gain time. And then again in 2.9, where he accused them of conspiring against him till the times change. Daniel used the word in his praise of God in 2.21, indicating that God changes times. So three times in chapter 2, this word appears. And in none of those occurrences can the word possibly mean year or years. The word also appears in chapter 3, verses 5 and 15, translated simply as when, referring to at the time when the musical instruments are played as a signal that it's time to worship. Why, then, would we assume that it refers to years in chapter 4? And I'll go ahead and toss an interpretive grenade on the floor to prepare for a later discussion. This is the word used in chapter 7 in the loaded phrase, time, times, and half a time. Will we find reason to believe that it refers to years there? We shall see. So what does it mean here? Well, Daniel actually does explain it, just not in terms of a specific length of time. An angel in the dream had said the words, and let seven periods of time pass over him in verse 16. When Daniel interprets this in verse 25, he adds a phrase to explain how long this will take place. Daniel says, Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Then in verse 32, Daniel's words are repeated verbatim by the voice from heaven. So in all of this, no one specifies how long King Nebuchadnezzar was away from the throne. And here's another interesting thing to consider. Daniel knows how long it lasted. He could have set the record straight by telling us the date Nebuchadnezzar was strolling on his palace roof, boasting of his own glory, and then telling us the date when God restored his sanity. Or Daniel could have simply said that he was away from the throne for X number of months or X number of years. Must not be that important. Instead, what is important is that the king must suffer this way until something else happens. However long it takes for Nebuchadnezzar to get the message regarding his own insignificance and God's supremacy and sovereignty, that's how long this lasted. Daniel could have used the word that means years, had he intended to specify the chronology. But he didn't. But to raise yet another thorny issue... He does use a number here, the number seven. 
So if the word for time or period of time is just that, a generic term that doesn't specify, what do we make of the number attached to it? What does seven time periods communicate if not something you can date on a calendar? Did this illness last seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven seasons, seven years, seven decades, seven centuries? We can probably eliminate a few of those. Some of those pieces we have to think very carefully about. But then are we even asking the right question? Given that the angel says seven periods of time, Daniel says seven periods of time, and the voice from heaven says seven periods of time, the seven seems important. In the Bible and in the ancient world more broadly, the number seven wasn't just used for counting. The number seven sometimes has symbolic significance. It usually signifies the idea of perfection or completion. Probably, this goes back in some fashion or another to the fact that God created the universe in six days and rested on the seventh day so that the completion of creation, climaxing with God's rest rest from creating on day seven, established a pattern that is reflected in other areas of human life. So if Daniel is using the number seven in this symbolic way, what does it mean? Daniel specifies only that this time frame will end when the king comes to understand that Yahweh, the most high God of Israel and of the universe, rules over human kingdoms and grants authority to whomever he wills, whenever he wills, for as long as he wills. How long will it take for the king to recognize this? Seven periods of time. Perhaps this is a poetic way of saying simply, it will take as long as it takes. Now, one more note about the historical reality. It is impossible to fit a seven-year period of King Nebuchadnezzar's absence from ruling the Babylonian Empire into what we know of his reign from Babylonian historical records. Now, of course, it's possible that the history books are lying or covering up a lengthy absence like this. But the only real reason that a person would have to make that assumption in this case is if you believe the inspired, inerrant Word of God teaches that Nebuchadnezzar was removed from his throne for seven precise years. I'm trying to show that the Bible does not, in fact, teach that then you can accept what we see in the history books where you do, in fact, find a period of about three or four years near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign where he seems to be quite inactive. Here's what we can conclude from history. If you'll put that next slide up on the screen. A little bit of a timeline with some of the dated events that we know from history. There is a historical gap in the Babylonian records of about three or four years that corresponds with what we know of as 571 to 568 B.C. And then the records pick up with his activity again, providing details of his invasion of Egypt toward the end of 568 B.C. Seems plausible to fit this experience into that window. Now, let's move on and take a look at Nebuchadnezzar's praise. Remember that he's addressing this letter, this account, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, which, as we said earlier, is surely just a reference to the many nations that he had conquered that were part of his empire. 
Now he praises Yahweh, the God of one of those conquered nations, Judah. We pick up his poetic words in the middle of verse 34. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? King Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging here that this God, Yahweh, the one true God, no one and no thing in heaven or on earth can hinder him in anything that he wants to do. There is no demonic, satanic, or angelic power that trips God up in accomplishing his purposes. I hope you believe that about your God. If you don't, what will it take for God to show you that this is true? Do you need to, t- to spend some time believing that you're an animal to get the point? Satan does not and cannot and never has stopped God from accomplishing his purposes. Let me personalize this a little bit. When you are struggling with either suffering or sin, you don't need to conclude that your suffering is because, of e- because either some demonic force has gotten the jump on God somehow, or your own sinfulness has somehow overpowered God. This verse is just one of many in the Bible that presses home the point that God always accomplishes His purposes. Always. When you are struggling, when you are failing, when you are sinning as a Christian, please don't think that the solution is you have to just let go and let God do something good in your life. Do you find yourself thinking or sometimes even saying out loud, if I just let go of my pride, let go of my stubbornness, let go of my lust, then maybe God could use me or grow me or change me. As though you've got to do something before God can do something. That idea suggests that you are stopping him. That you have more power than he does. Whatever is actually going on in times when we are sinning, I hope that we don't conclude that this is the right answer. That somehow my sinfulness overpowers God. That we can in any way hinder God from working in our lives. Look at the pagan king's true words in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. All who would oppose God count for nothing in their opposition against God. David, in Psalm 62.9, says that the most powerful people in the world are lighter than a breath from God's vantage point. Isaiah puts all the people of all nations together and says in Isaiah 40:15, "Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales." Two verses later, he adds, "All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness." 
less than nothing and emptiness. Yes, the nation's rage and the people's plot, but all in vain. In the face of such raging and plotting, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. After all, whenever he wants to, he can make them think they're a dumb ox for a few years. The king goes on and says, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus taught us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we can think that that petition means that God's will is only being accomplished in heaven, but not on the earth. We look around at the world and we say, surely God's will is not being done around here. But that is not true. Everything is going according to plan. This is where we need to recognize the different ways the Bible talks about God's will. Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing the reality that all of history, and this includes the details of your individual life, moves according to the plan of this sovereign God. His will is His plan. And everything that transpires in the heavenly realms, among the angels and demons, and everything that transpires in this world among human beings, every bit of it, is part of a good, grand plan that was put in motion when God created the universe. But many times, the Bible speaks of God's will as what God commands His people to do or not to do. It is God's will that people not murder each other. It is God's will that people worship Him alone. But people do murder each other. And people do worship false gods. The angels in heaven obey God's will of command. Thus, when Jesus teaches us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are to be asking God to enable people on the earth to obey God's will, God's commands, perfectly. Now truly, it's God's will, God's plan, to enable people to obey God's will perfectly and completely only at the consummation of history, after Jesus returns to this earth and provides glorified bodies for His people. In the meantime, we must recognize that God wills what He does not will. That is to say... God's plan includes human and angelic rebellion and sin. All as part of the greater story that God is telling about His own glory, His own righteousness, His own love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. But also, in the meantime, God does respond to our request that His will be done on earth. He does enable people to actually obey Him by the power of the Holy Spirit, not perfectly, but truly. And so here, King Nebuchadnezzar praises God for His successful outworking of His grand plan. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar says, 
none can stay his hand. The Aramaic conveys the vivid image of no one being able to slap God's hand away when he reaches out to act in this world. Thus, whatever is happening, again, when we sin, whether believers or unbelievers, it cannot be said that a person is preventing God from doing what he wants to do. Holding God back, hindering or limiting God, or stopping God from accomplishing His purposes. That, my friends, is impossible. Neither can anyone question God the way Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of verse 35. What have you done? That's not a question asking for information. That's a question that's making an accusation that you've done something wrong, that God's done something wrong. No one on the planet, not even a great king, has the right to look at God's ways and judge them as wrong or evil. Now glance down to verse 37 briefly, as the king adds a further word of praise there. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Yes, indeed. Finally, we see with crystal clarity the sin of Nebuchadnezzar. It is the sin of pride. His taking of credit for the greatness of his kingdom, refusing to acknowledge the source of his success, even when that source had already repeatedly revealed himself in power to him. He's basically saying that God made him act like an ox and it was right for him to do it. He recognizes that even though it was humiliating, even though it was painful, it was right, totally deserved, and just. Now, is Nebuchadnezzar a changed man? Lots of folks look at this as though the king has converted to becoming a worshiper of Yahweh. I think that is reading a lot into the text, especially in light of verse 36. Look there again. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. There's still an awful lot of I, me, and mine in there, don't you think? He is giving some credit to God now, I just don't see enough evidence that he's been fundamentally changed. I don't think anything here suggests that he has transferred his allegiance to the God of Israel. The king says many true things about God. This is his public statement, his letter. And in his public statement, he's making claims about the God of Israel. Throughout history... Politicians have given public lip service to God or Jesus. Whether in their published writings or in their correspondence with other politicians in order to solidify their reputation, particularly with Christians. It has happened in this country from the founders on down to today. And it has happened in many other countries. It's interesting throughout history as you look back, after rulers or politicians die, oftentimes their private correspondence comes to light. Their private journals are suddenly published for all to read. It's an interesting study to contrast their religious comments in public documents with their more private writings. 
It's hard to know what a person really believes when that person has a constituency to please, power to maintain, or policy to influence. Now, as we come to the end of the message this morning, let's review the main message of Daniel 4. God is the rightful ruler over all human kingdoms, and He decides which, when, and how long human rulers receive authority. An important application of this comes in Nebuchadnezzar's experience. God executes His rightful rule over all human kingdoms by holding them accountable, by bringing judgment against the unrepentant, especially proud human rulers who arrogantly seek glory for themselves. Often, pride is manifested by ingratitude. The Apostle Paul chastised the Corinthians in this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So I ask you, do you really see everything that you have that is good? Do you really see that God has given you whatever you have that is rightly called good? And if so, how often do you thank Him out loud with words? Are you quick to take credit for your accomplishments? Do you revel in trophies or awards? Do you fuss and complain because you think you're not getting something good you deserve? Or because you think you're getting something bad you don't deserve? Beware, Christian. Our attitude should be more akin to what Jesus said in Luke 17.10. So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Our sovereign God is able to humble those who walk in pride, even rulers. Ultimately, He will fulfill the primary message of this passage by giving the kingdom of men to the man he has appointed, the one Daniel will see in chapter 7, identified as one like a son of man. This man is the lowliest of men, not pompous and arrogant like Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel will see this man in chapter 7, and what he sees is this, Daniel seven fourteen, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that combines the language of Daniel 2.44, Daniel 4.3, and Daniel 4.34. What Nebuchadnezzar said about God is here said about the one like a son of man. This man, of course, is Jesus. The king who did not consider his genuine equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. The king who humbled himself to the lowest place, submitting even to a shameful death on a cross, executed as a criminal. God treated Jesus the way God treats sin. God rages against sin. He hates sin. He punishes sin. He destroys sin. God did that to Jesus. To what end? So that God would never rage against sinners who trust Jesus. So that He would never hate sinners who trust Jesus. 
so that he would never punish sinners who trust Jesus, so that he would never destroy sinners who trust Jesus. As God did to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, today, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The judge is the king, and he was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. If you don't trust the risen king, if you don't receive his offer of mercy, if you don't believe that his death paid for your sins, you will face him a guilty criminal, and you will face him as the holy judge who rages against sin, hates sin, punishes sin, and destroys sin. And you will receive exactly what you deserve for all eternity. Humble yourself before the Lord. Repent of your sin and trust this Savior. And He will exalt you, rescue you, reward you, and transform you. Exalt yourself against the Lord. Claim credit for the good things in your life. And fuss about God's unfairness when bad things come. And He will humble you, judge you, and repay you according to your deeds. I, like Moses thousands of years ago, have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Repent and believe the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for having this record for us in your word. It brings a challenge to us who have a tendency to pride. It brings a hard warning of the danger of exalting ourselves against you. Would you stir us? Would you remind us that all that is rightly called good in this world and in our lives comes from you. And would you move us to say thank you more regularly than we do now? We owe you all gratitude. We owe you all praise. You deserve all credit. And may we be the kind of people that constantly turn the attention to you and not to ourselves. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace that you have made a way for proud, sinful, rebellious people like us to submit to you and to find you to be a loving and gracious Father. Thank you for your sovereign rule over our lives and thank you that your plans are always accomplished. Would you help us to trust you for those plans for the future no matter what comes our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I could keep you for just one moment longer, um, I just want to make a quick announcement here. Some of you have been visiting with us for a few weeks, and I just wanted to make sure that you're aware that we gather as a body in the gym at 10 a.m. on Sundays to sing together, and we would love for you to join us for that. But also, next Sunday in particular, I just wanted to let you know that we'll be sharing the Lord's Supper here together on Sunday morning. And if you're a believer in Jesus and you've been visiting with us, we would welcome you to participate with us. And we start that here in this room at 1045. 
And so if you need to make arrangements to be here a little bit earlier, we would love for you to join us for that. Go in peace.